evening. Please find a seat if you would. Uh, my name is Brian Williams. I'm happy to be here with you tonight and to get to open the Word of God with you and see what He has to share with us, has to show us. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can open to uh, Romans chapter 3. That's where we're going to be. And uh, this is our second to last week in the book of Romans. We've been marching through it for la- like the last six weeks, or it will be a total of six weeks. Uh, we're in chapter three, and there's more than three chapters in the book of Romans. Uh, next week, we'll, we'll, this week, I'm going to cover the first half of chapter three. Next week, we'll finish out chapter three. And then we're done talking about it from up here on stage. But that doesn't mean we're done with the book of Romans. Uh, our hope all along is that you... Uh, hopefully, maybe you've been reading along or, or reading further into the book of Romans and diving into it. If you haven't been, well, there's plenty of opportunity, you know, your whole life. Uh, and I encourage you to do so. <laughs> I encourage you to do so. The book of Romans is just so rich. Our, our, our desire all through this wasn't to, like, do this exhaustive, here's what every word and syllable means and what we can get out of it. The, the hope really was that uh, we just sort of lay a foundation, sort of like the groundwork, so that as you dive into this book on your own, this letter, uh, you'd have what's needed, sort of the tools along the way to kind of be like, oh, I understand what's going on here, why he's saying that, or I see culturally what's happening with this. And we're just trying to give you what you need so that you can go to the word yourself, um, not just be like, you know, spoon feeding. Here you go, here you go. But to like set you up to go eat on your own. Yeah. So that's what we've been doing. Uh, we've gone through the first three chapters, and before we get into chapter three, it's important to recap kind of where we've been. It's really helpful, especially if you haven't been walking with us over these last few weeks. So um, Paul, this guy Paul, Apostle Paul, it's his first century, uh, and the church just started, just just came out of nowhere. And Paul has been a key character, uh, in key person in its spreading and really advancing in, in pretty incredible, amazing ways. And uh, this is later on in his life, and he's writing letters out to people, and he's actually writing to this church in Rome. It's a community that he's actually never been to. He's never visited before, but he's heard about some of the dynamics there. He has acquaintances there in the church in Rome, and uh, he knows kind of the Jewish Gentile who's in, out, who's in, who's out tensions uh, that are at play there. He's like super familiar with them. Um, he's written a lot of other letters in the Bible, by the way, like the book of Galatians, which is addressing very similar issues to the book of Romans. And also in the book of Acts, we see that he's encountering this all the time. Acts is a history. Um, it's a history of um, the expansion of the church after Jesus' ascension. And in the book of Acts, we see that Paul is having to confront and deal with these like Jewish and Gentile tensions like who's who's in, who's saved, and who's not, and why, and how's that come about, and it's getting messy. And not everywhere, but in certain places, it's really getting messy, and he's having to deal with it and talk through it. By the way, Gentile basically just means not Jewish. So, I don't know, this room, probably most of us are Gentiles. Probably. I don't know. Some of you aren't, though. Glad you're here. Okay. Chosen person. Uh, really glad you're here. <laughs> yeah, as we go through tonight, you'll see that uh, we're all chosen. All right, yeah, it's good. Amen. God is good. So, uh, Paul ends chapter one, and, and he makes it clear, basically, like I just said, that everyone, everyone is justifiably condemned by God. Everyone. Also, everyone's saved by God. Everyone has that opportunity to be saved. 
See, even the Gentile, the non-Jew, who, who knows nothing of, of God or of his law specifically, is, is justifiably condemned by God because it is written on their hearts. The laws of God, the, the moral rights are written on their hearts. And one of the penalties of sin is sin itself. Yeah. One of the penalties of sin is sin itself. Think about that. It's not just like, oh, I sinned, so now I don't get to go to heaven. Like, sin is its own punishment. It makes your life worse. That's why God tells us, don't, don't steal. Don't cheat. Don't lie. It's not just because he's like, because you're not good enough to come in, and I want you to be better. He's like, no, because it sucks for you. <laughs> your life gets worse, and the lives of all those around you is going to be worse. Life is better when people don't sin. And so a Gentile, a person who maybe has no idea of God's law, they still have the laws of God written on their hearts because the consequences of sin are obvious. Like wisdom just recognizes outcomes and then discerns what is right. Like even the person in here who is walking through life in complete ignorance of the Bible has trespassed upon their own conscience in ways that align with God's decrees. And so even without having known God's explicit condemnation of those who steal or murder or devote themselves to anything outside of himself or, or, or even lie, even without God's explicit declarations, there is an implicit awareness, for the most part, <laughs> of what is right. And so there is justifiable condemnation of those who have... On, acted contrary to what is right. We all are justifiably condemned and sinful. So that's chapter one, right? And Paul basically says to the Gentiles, like, look, you guys don't get to plead ignorance here. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. You need salvation, for you have failed, and your iniquity condemns you. Then he moves into chapter two to address the Jews in the congregation, who probably heard that last part about the guilt of the Gentiles and were like, mm hmm, yes, yes. Those Gentiles, ooh, filthy, you know? They're just like, we need Jesus, but they, they really need Jesus, right? Man. Like, ooh, <laughs> it's rough, man. But I don't think I can condemn them because I've done that. You probably have too. Even if you don't know, you don't have to know Jesus and be a Christian to be somebody who can be a snob and proud and judge others. Think of yourself as morally better than someone else. They have this attitude of like, mm, yes, those lowly ones. They have this toward fellow Christ followers who just happen to be Gentile. And they're like, you guys, you Gentiles, you don't, you don't, you don't know any of the things we know. Like, like, we're the people of covenant. We're the people who are chosen by God. Like, look at us. Look at us. You'll, you'll, you'll never get on our level, okay? But let me tell you a few things that might help you out. Let me tell you a few things so that maybe one day you'll get on my level. Underneath all of this is this, like, status thing. Of, like, who gets to be uh, in who gets into heaven? Who, who gets to be closest to God? And it's all about status. And so Paul is having to address those issues in the Roman worshiping community. And man, he just goes straight at it. There's no beating around the bush. There's no flowery, like, 
you know, you guys are doing pretty good, but there's a thing or two I kind of want to talk to you about. He's like, listen, this is not good. It's not good for you. It's not good for anyone else. So knock it off. <laughs> As a dad, like, man, I do that so much. <laughs> like, I do that so much. It's just like it's something you have to do when there's foolishness. Foolishness is happening. And you have to be like, mm, no, 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 no. I like our couch. Please do not take that knife over there. <laughs> A butter knife. Don't worry. We're not giving him anything crazy. But yeah. Okay. Anyway, distracted. So beginnings, beginning of Romans 2. After talking about how the Gentiles are rightfully judged by God as wicked, uh, Paul speaks to the Jews in that community, and, he, and we read this in, in verse 1 and 2. You, he's talking to the Jews, you think you can condemn such people, right? Like those Gentiles who are without excuse for their wickedness. You think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad, and you have no excuse. You when you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others are doing the very same things. And we know that God, in his justice, his good justice, will punish anyone who does such things. So Paul just lays out, he's like, guys, you're not, you're not better in God's sight than your Gentile neighbors. You are not less in need of Jesus' salvation. You're on equal footing before God. Equally in need and helpless without the mercy and grace of God that is expressed and provided through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We ended chapter 2 last week. And who was here last week? Anybody here last week? Man, Aaron Kajumba, thankful for that dude. I'm so thankful. He, he wrestled through the second half of chapter 2, and then he invited us in to participate in it. Also, like he did a fantastic job just navigating like whatever was happening with the electricity in here. Um, did a great job. If you weren't here, like, stuff shut down, and I don't know, you just did a great job being like, all right, well, let's just keep going. It was really great. Also a good message. I really enjoyed it and was impacted by it personally. Like, I, that was something I needed to hear last week and has continued to be something I'm wrestling with. And then I hope you're doing the same. That when something in here, if you come on Thursday night or I don't, throughout the week or whenever you're reading, reading the Word, if, if you hear something, or, or you're just like, man, that hits me. And even if you don't have clarity on how or why, if you're just like, something about that was moving, don't just leave it at that. Go, there's, there's something there, process it. Like, go take some time, slow down, bust out a journal, or like, just go on a walk without your phone, and be like, all right, it's time to process what was happening there. What, did, what was said? Why did I feel this way? God, what do you have? What, what are you showing me? What should I see? Dive into it. All right. So, Aaron Kajumba, right? He jumps into it. And, and the end of chapter 2, Paul is contrasting the, the Jews and their boasting and their pride in, in their lineage and their customs and their Jewishness. Jewishness, Jewishness. Uh, it's hard. This is going to be a hard night. Uh, He's contrasting it with the reality of those, uh, of what those things, that their, their Jewishness, what that was meant to produce in them, the customs that God had given him, the fact that they were the chosen people, it, it was meant to produce something in them. 
not just be a title that they wear and be like, huh, huh, look at me. Like, it's like, no, it's supposed to change who you are. It's supposed to do something in you. And in verses 28 and 29, we read, it says, For you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. Not from people. So Paul, chapter 2. At that point, he's just sort of dismantled a bit of the Jews' sense of identity. It's an identity he shared with them. He's also Jewish. And, and, and this is where we pick up in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1. And he starts with uh, sort of the questions that he imagines they would ask. They're, they're rebuttals, you might say, of all the things he's just said. So verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. It goes like this. What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew? What value is there in circumcision? Right? Like I said, question. Right? So if there... If, if it's all about the heart, then what's the point? Why did God create and call the Jewish nation? Verse 2, much in every way. There is an advantage. There's so much. There's value. Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. Like the Jews have a unique privilege and a unique responsibility of stewarding the explicit laws and revelations of God. And it is a privilege and a responsibility that carried a unique opportunity for blessing and a unique opportunity for accountability. It carried both. If you are a follower of Jesus and you have the Spirit of God in you, we're in the same position. We have a unique opportunity for blessing, but also a unique opportunity for accountability. Because if we're supposed to be the people of God, if we're supposed to be the church and, and anyone outside of our community is supposed to be able to look at us and go, ah, that's what the kingdom of God looks like. That's what the people of God, that's how they love. That's, that's how they speak truth. That's how they show grace. Are we doing a good job of it? The, the knowledge that God has given us, the opportunities he has given us, the salvation he has given us is a unique opportunity for blessing, immeasurable blessing. But with it comes a unique opportunity for accountability. The Jews are in that same boat. They were in that same boat. So verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? Well, basically, what if some did a bad job with the responsibility to steward the words and will of God? Well, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. For as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. So he's quoting the Old Testament here. And this is a direct quote from Psalm 51. And as is often the case when a New Testament writer quotes the Old Testament, it's sort of like a call and response. It's not meant to just be like, and there's the thing. It's meant to like trigger all these other thoughts. Um, because he's quoting like the pertinent section of Psalm 51, but it's intended to recall to, in the reader the entirety of that section. The, the fullness of the context of that one line, because they knew 
the Old Testament. They knew it. They knew God's word deeply. And so to hear this, they like we hear that and go, okay, I'll look in my Bible later maybe to see where that's from. But they would have heard that and been like, Psalm 51, what up? Yeah, I know. David, you wrote that. Man, you were a dark place. Man, God was good to you. Like they would have just recalled all of it. And so I'm going to read a little bit of Psalm 51 here to give us the context of why he might use this, why this one line would be meaningful in what he's explaining here. And not just here in these few verses, but in this whole section. It goes like this. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And here's our line. You will be proved right in what you say and your judgment against me is just. A couple other verses here later on. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Give me back my joy again. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, God. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. This is a reminder for them that it has always been about God's mercy. And he is faithful to not reject a repentant heart. It has always been about God's mercy. And he is faithful to not reject a repentant heart. And repentant just means to turn. To recognize and go, man, this isn't the way I should be going. Ah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, God. I'm sorry. Forgive me, please. I want something different. So the Jews... They have a great honor and responsibility to steward the commands of God. There is value in being Jewish. But basically, you are still wholly dependent upon God's mercy. And your only confidence is that God is faithful to not reject a repentant heart. The same is true for every single one of us, for every person who walks this planet. Our only confidence is is that God is faithful to not reject a repentant heart. Obviously, what's the qualifier there? You gotta be repentant. If you're proud, go and look at me. I'm pretty awesome. I'm better than you. Hmm, yeah, I'm better than that guy. That's not repentant. That's not humble. That's not recognizing, wow, man, Lord, I'm sorry. I, I don't, I'm not better than that person. I'm just as in need as they are. My sin just looks different. Lord, help me. Like, we need to be a people of repentant heart. And God will not reject us. He won't reject us at all. All it takes is to say, I'm sorry. To recognize, I need you. I need you, Lord. Help me. Help me continues in verse 5. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? Again, remember, he's like gaming it out. Like, what, what might their rebuttals be? This is like 
rhetorical question. What shall we say? If, if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument here. I love how he like puts that in there. It's like, just by the way, that's a human argument. That's not like a good argument. He's writing a letter, right? It's just funny. Okay. Certainly not. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases, increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is just. He's like, man, people who say that, who, who get into that argument, no, like you are going down the wrong path. The wrong, that is not the path of God. Um, man, this whole section, like, I could just go on for days, about it, like, for days on this. In, in essence, like, when we fail and God forgives us and others look at him with awe and admiration that he could be so merciful. When I look at him and, with awe and admiration that he could be so merciful, that's, it's glorious, right? It's a glorious thing. How loving he must be to forgive you. Wow. To invite you to participate. Wow, he is good. He is so good. What was to my shame is now to his glory. And if I share uh, the shameful sin in my life that I have repented of and God has forgiven me of, well, it's no longer shameful. It's become glorious, but not to me, to him. It is still, it could still be shameful to me. But guess what? When I get to the place of recognizing how sinful and broken I am, and I'm actually at the place of repentance where I'm like, oh my gosh, I just need you. And then the Lord lifts your chin up and says, my son, I see you. Come to me. I'll take care of you. When I'm in that place, and I'm talking about me personally, that's a place where it's like, man, Guys, guess what? I suck. <laughs> Look what, but he's so good. And it may still be shameful to me, but it's now glorious to him because it's saying, look, I suck and he still loves me. And it's so, that's like, that's when people are drawn to God. Not when we hide what's wrong with us, but when we say, look, I'm a messed up person and he still loves me and he chose me. And he, and he rescues me and he invites me to participate. If you've ever wondered, like, what's the key to evangelism? It's not having a polished, like, thing. It's actually just your testimony. And your testimony doesn't really exist without saying, I'm sinful. Yes, that's true. You have to acknowledge, I'm sinful. Or you have no testimony. Because you've never really repented. And so why hide that part of your life? because it can be glorious to God. Yes. Now the key here is you still got to repent first. <laughs> continue to repent. Continue to repent, because you're going to need to continue to do it. Continue to repent, and it will bring glory to God. Like the fact that God would love me and invite me to be used by him and to produce good things in the lives of others. Like some of you guys, like, this is wild. Me, I'm a sinner, like, 
I'm a man who has lied and cheated. I have stolen. I have lusted. I have hated. I have slandered. I, I have not done the good that I know I should have done. Like I come up here tonight and like every other preacher ever right, like comes up and is in some way hypocritical. But I, I know mine personally. I know my own hypocrisy. And I come up here and, and I'm speaking of the things of God while being aware of my own present shortcomings. Like this whole message is a message for me as much as for anyone else in here tonight. I'm no better than any of you. I'm no better than any of you. Not one of you. We're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. We all need Jesus. We all need his mercy. And the only hindrance any of us have to receiving it, to being with Jesus, is our own unrepentant hearts, our pride, our control, our self-reliance. Like a failure, me, a failure. A hard-hearted man like me that hasn't, <laughs> that God hasn't washed his hands with me and cast me away, that is glorious to him because he's that good and he's that kind. And if there's any good you see in me or receive from me, that is glorious to God, not because I'm, I'm, I'm not worth it, but he has chosen to let me participate in his love for you. That's glorious to him. That's amazing. And so, <laughs> if that's the case for all of us, right? Paul's gaming out the argument. Then why not sin more so that God gets more glory? Well, here's the problem with that. God is actually loving and just, and he wants better for us than what sin has to offer. And while our forgiven sin brings glory to him, our redeemed and transformed life brings him joy. Yes. Like there's greater glory yet to be given as we become the salt and light of the earth. Our delight in him is the greatest glory we can give him. Our life actually becoming transformed to look more and more like his own, to reflect the values and realities of his kingdom, that is the most glory we can give him because that is not just a thing of discipline. Discipline's a part of it. But it's actually a thing of joy. It's relational. It's knowing him. It's walking with him. It's being in that place of being like, oh, you love me so much. You are so good. How can you be so good? Oh, man, I just want to be with you. What does it take? How, how can I be with you? I just want to be with you. Continues in verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? And he's talking, of course, about the Jews. What shall we conclude then? Do, do the Jews have any advantage in, in salvation? No, not at all. Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Now, later on, he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And like I said, the advantage he's talking about here is salvation. We all are equally in need of a Savior and equally provided for in Jesus. This, of course, translates well into our day and age and our church and your families and your friend groups. We are all equally in need of a Savior, savior and equally provided for in Jesus. Yes. All. 
Every one of you. The random person you meet at the gas station, and you're like, that guy's messed up. Like, you laugh because you've done it. <laughs> like, you know what I'm talking about. You're probably picturing a moment when you're like, you're sitting there pumping, and you're like, don't walk over here. Please don't come near me. Oh, gosh. Lord, keep me safe. <laughs> like, like that, that woman who you see walking, and you're just like, oh, gosh. <laughs> that girl, man, her life has gotten messed up. Whatever. I'm glad I'm not her. Rather than like, oh, Lord, help her. If only she would see you and recognize that you love her the way I have found out that you love me. Yes. That's it. We've got to look at the world differently. So now he, Paul, we're going to continue in our passage here. He dumps like six different quotes all in a row. Uh, you know, five or four, four, I think, are from the Psalms. One's from Isaiah, one's from Ecclesiastes. And, and he does this to just drive the point home for these Jewish believers. And he just, like an, like an Old Testament survey, real quick, of this fact that, like, all people suck. Verse 10, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace, they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So what he does, he's like, he uses God's word from which like those Jews, all of their laws and all of their pride is derived from the word of God, from the Old Testament. And he uses these quotes to wake them up, to shake them to their senses. Your status is the same as those Gentiles you're looking down on. Your status, your status, everyone in here, your status is a sinner, helpless at the mercy of God and saved through faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and what that means for your life. We all have an equal status when it comes to salvation, when it comes to our standing before God. And this is a central issue, I think, in this whole letter that Paul is addressing. It's the issue of status. So you've got these people, the Jews, who in first century, especially in Rome, uh, are, are generally treated as inferior. They're outcasts. They're the oddballs. They're the ones who don't really participate in the things that they should, uh, that everybody else participates in. And probably, not all the time, but probably and hopefully not in the community of believers, but most often they're treated inferior. Certainly in society at large they are, but yeah, like hopefully not in the family of believers. And so they're walking around and they have this wound. They've got this inferiority wound. And it's present with them even when they are in the community of believers even if that inferiority behavior doesn't exist there, they still bring the wound with them. And I like, like, think about it. Jesus is Jewish. <laughs> Jesus is Jewish. This is very much birthed out of their culture and their tradition, their lineage. The Christian movement was birthed through synagogues. Like as it spread around the Mediterranean world, it started in synagogues. The Christian believers, apostles in the first century, they, they would show up in a new town and would start in the synagogue, the Jewish houses of worship. 
And Paul did this too. Paul did this too. And eventually they'd kick him out and he'd just go out on the streets and keep preaching and shepherding people. And the people that had believed in the synagogue would come with him and those Gentiles who had believed would come with him and, and he'd like take it outside of the stained glass windows, you might say, um, of the synagogues. And so it's birthed out of these Jewish communities of worship and dispersed to the masses, Jew and Gentile alike. And doesn't it just make so much sense that it wouldn't take much intention, perhaps none at all, to, to compensate for the wounding of having someone else unjustly having status over you by unjustly asserting your status over them when the opportunity arises? Which, by the way, directly contradicts the words of Jesus, do not repay evil for evil. Your wounding does not justify you wounding someone else. Them sinning against you does not justify you sinning against them. Like, not in the eyes of God. And, and that's not the sort of kingdom he has built. That's not the example Jesus lived. And so some of these Jews have assumed that they are superior, that they have the real ticket to salvation, and in doing so, they have carelessly, carelessly reduced the gospel to this, like, are you in or are you out status sort of thing. And that's all it's become. And Paul is imagining that they might be arguing with him, right? Like, he, he's imagining this along the way because he's heard these arguments. He's heard them again and again. He's seen people in the same state. Maybe at one point he was in this same place. I don't know. And, and they're saying stuff like, well, if you say that, then you know, what's the point of being a Jew then? Like these like gotcha questions. Like, well, if you, well, what, what? And you're like, where it just becomes about argument. And, and these sort of rebuttals, it shows a whole spirit, a whole heart that, that really it's, it's not about being right, but about trying to justify yourself. I think we've all been there before. I know I have. And this is a human issue. This isn't a Jewish issue. This is a human issue. We are all of us so caught up in self-justification, making myself right, me trying to make myself right in front of all of you and all of your eyes, or me trying to make myself right before God or before within myself, for myself, trying to make myself feel right about, but yeah, I'm fine, I'm good, I'm good, I'll be all right, I'm all right, God loves me, I'm forgiven, I'm, I'm, not, I'm better than that person, like, <laughs> ah, this human issue, it's just, we rationalize foolishness and sinfulness. And we all do it. And that's the part of all of this as we read, we've been reading through this chapter here. Even though he's addressing the Jews, there's so much here that is so universal to all of us. He's having to address the stuff that's going on in this worshiping community. And, and the way he's doing it is first dismantling the defenses they have built for their identity. There's, there's, there's a lot of things going on, but, but he can't even get at the theological issues, the, the like corruption of the gospel that they're doing, until he first breaks down their defenses to, that, that'll allow them to even be open to the, the realities of the ways that they've failed. He has to first dismantle the defenses they have built for their identity. The Jews in that community have asserted their superior status on the only grounds they have, and that's religious grounds. 
That's ethnic grounds. And they clamor for comfort for their inferiority wounding. And they find it not in the God who has saved them and called them his own, but in their imagined advantage over others when it comes to salvation. And they have turned to comparison and self-justification rather than the gift of God's provision. They're like looking at people and just going, look, you're not a Jew, so salvation is going to be harder for you uh, to get than it was for me. And, you know, like, but look, there's a couple things you can do to kind of make up for that. And, you know, maybe God will look at you one day like he looks at me. When the gospel becomes understood only in terms of who is in and who is out, we have missed something very important about what the gospel actually is. When you see people, these people, like, man, they were pridefully positioning themselves over others saying, like, I've punched my ticket to salvation. I've punched my ticket to heaven. And so I'm good. I'm good. All the while, their hearts were completely untransformed and corrupt. And the evidence for it is in the very fact they are asserting their status over others. And they are misrepresenting the God they claim to know and the gospel, the good news they claim to have received. They are misrepresenting the God they claim to know and the gospel they claim to have received. Verse 19. Now we know, that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, and so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So three things out of this I just want to point out. So one, because the law exists, be it explicit or implicit, there is reason for judgment. Because there is a moral right, because there is God is in, has delivered to us the opportunity to recognize that there are things that are good and things that are bad, behaviors that are good and behaviors that are bad, whether that's through his explicit written law in the Old Testament and the New Testament or through what's written in our own hearts. We, are, we have all failed, and there's reason for us to be judged. And because that law exists, because the law exists, and we have all broken it, we cannot appeal to any measure of our own merit. And then finally, because the law exists, all of us are relieved of the plea of ignorance about our need for a savior. This is like basic gospel stuff. And if you're a believer and you've been walking with Jesus for a long time and you're like, yeah, yeah. Think about it though. These Jews, they've known this their whole life, yet they weren't living the reality of those three things. Are you? You may know it, but are you living it? These Jews know the law, but it's not the basis of their salvation. It's the basis of their condemnation. You, if you know Jesus and you're walking with him, if you are like, man, I know the Bible. What up? I go to a small group. Good. I'm glad you do. That's really, really good. But here's the thing. That is a wonderful opportunity for immense blessing, but also an incredible opportunity a massive opportunity for accountability. That stuff is not the basis of your salvation, but it can be the basis of your condemnation. 
Paul dismantles their identity that has been built on status. He dismantles it because that's not how God's kingdom works. That's not how the people of God act. What Jesus accomplished was bigger than do you get to go to heaven or not. And that's a part of it, but that's not all of it. That's not all of it. And so coming out of this, what I want to give to you, I hope God has been speaking. The Spirit has been moving on your heart and showing you some things and calling you to things. But maybe I can give some practicals leaving out of here. And Band, if you want to make you up in a, few, in a moment or two. So one thing, I want to encourage you to shift your focus if you need to from where do I rank to what do you have in mind for me, Lord? Ask the questions like, like, how would you like to use me to bring more of your kingdom to earth as it is in heaven? Who do you love, Lord, and how can I love them like you do? Shift your focus from where do I rank in God's eyes to it's all about you, Jesus, and whatever you judge is right. The focus of one of Paul's other letters, the letter to the Ephesians, is, is that everything can be summed up in the centrality of Jesus. Not just what is to come, right, like heaven, but even this moment. This very moment and all the moments along the way can be summed up in the positive centrality of Jesus. That's what it is to live the Christian life. That's what it is to know the immense blessings, the immense opportunity for blessing being a follower of Jesus is, is living it in the moments, in the present, in the today. From that place, the centrality of Jesus in everything One day, heaven will be ours to enjoy and experience, but also today, heaven can be a part of what we enjoy. Like today, we can exercise the spiritual gifts that he has given us for building up his church. Today, Jesus is breaking the bonds of sin and death in your life. Today, Jesus can grant us peace in this life and in death. Today, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we are free from sin and we are united with him. Today, we can rest securely knowing that through Jesus, God has adopted us into his family. Securely. Securely knowing that through Jesus, God has adopted us into his family. That's how we know. That's how we are secured. Today, you can live a life of delighting in him and bringing him endless glory, but it starts with turning your eyes from yourself and where do you rank and how do you compare to that person? Turning your eyes from all of that stuff to just, you are so good, Lord. Thank you for forgiving me. I hope more would see you, the good that you are. More would know the forgiveness that I've known, the love that I've known. It isn't about punching uh, our ticket to heaven It's more than that. The gospel is about capturing and redeeming every part of you, every nook and cranny, every moment, every thought, every attitude and affection. The the gospel advances God's kingdom, and that is what it does, and that is what it is about. And God's kingdom is his authority, it's his values, it's his love and purpose, all that he is, and anywhere he reigns, that is his kingdom. And it's about advancing his kingdom, not just getting you to heaven. The miracle of the gospel or one of them. And by the way, the gospel is the good news of Jesus, of his death, burial, and resurrection, and what that means for a sinner like me and a sinner like you, that we are no longer condemned, that we can be forgiven, be reunited with God. A miracle of that good news is that he can be glorified in and through all things, even broken, sinful people like you and me, right here and now. Not one day, not when we get to heaven, but now, yeah. 
He has provided, not you. Not of your own merit or might. It's been him. And it will be him. So remember, it has always been about God's mercy. And he is faithful to not reject a repentant heart. We're going to sing here now. And as we do, this song we're going to sing um, uses uh, a name of God, Jireh, which means provider. See, in the Old Testament, they, they would give different names to God to describe certain attributes that they observed in him and understood to be true about him. And Jehovah Jireh, Lord Provider, is, is that name, one of the names they gave him. And as we sing this song, Jireh means provider, that God is our provider. He's provided everything we need. He did it. He is our only hope. It's not because, hey, look at me. I'm so cool. <laughs> I'm so good. I'm a pastor. Mm. That's the very thing that Paul is rebuking these Jews for. It's not about you. It's all about what God has provided. It's not about how awesome you are. It's all about that he has provided what you couldn't. Just turn your attention to him and the fact that he provides and let everything else fall away and follow him. Say, I'm yours, Lord. You provide. I'll go where you're sending. I'll do what you, what you call me to do. I, I just want more of you. And I trust that you will provide everything I need and have provided. Let's stand and let's sing to the God who provides. <laughs>